Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julieta Garris. Christopher Seaman, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra's conductor laureate, returns this week along with violinist Simone Porter for a trio of audience favorites. Of course, they're both favorites in our studio, so it's great to welcome them back. Welcome back, Christopher. Thank you. And welcome back, Simone. Thank you. So, uh, we have a wonderful program ahead of us with Hindemith Bruch Bruch and Tchaikovsky. Um, Have you ever worked together before? We have. Uh, we worked together, I think, about a year and a half ago in Des Moines. Uh, playing, I was playing the Sibelius Concerto, and it was my first time ever attempting that piece. Um, You'd never have known. <laughs> That's never very kind of you to say. <laughs> well, yes, the facade worked, maybe. Um, but this time we're doing uh, Brooke, which is something which has been a lifetime fa- favorite of mine, so different position, but uh, very much looking forward. Well, we're going to talk about the Brooke in just a little bit, but we'll start off uh, talking about the Hindemith, shall we? The symphonic metamorphosis on themes by Carl Maria von Weber takes a whole lot of breath to say the whole title. You bet. What terrible marketing to write a piece that's enormous fun with a title like that. It's true. It's it's a very, it's a grim thing. Um, this actually sort of almost kind of began, at, at least as the idea of a ballet, although yeah, that didn't work. It didn't work out. He didn't get on with the, the ballet chap. And so um, he decided to turn the music into an orchestral piece. And uh, very successful it is too. The, the music is based on tunes by Weber, but I think he did a lot to them. You know, they don't all sound like Weber. Uh, actually, the themes um, came from a, a play that he wrote, music that he wrote for a play by Carl Gotze on the Turin Dot. Yeah, that's the second movement, yes. That's variations on a, on a tune, and he occasionally uses the percussion in a slightly oriental way because of the Turin Dot thing. So... This also, I believe, is a piano piece. Um, Hindemith used to play this with his wife for piano, two hands, four that hands. That I did not know. Really? I didn't know yeah. that, no. Every now and then, he and the wife would tune it up. and. You mean and not all the time, just intermittently? Yeah, intermittently. That's very good. Oh not gosh. original, but don't worry. Yeah, you know, that was, wow. We're, we're just speechless, aren't we, Simone? Yeah. I, wouldn't. No, I thought not. I knew all the composer no, ones. Yeah. <laughs> but but Balanchine would later choreograph it, and then there would be two more not as successful pieces. So eventually, ultimately, this was meant, meant to be danced. Yes, uh, but then he turned it into an orchestral piece, which is bouncy and dancey, some of it, not all. And uh, you could dance to it, I guess. It's a very big orchestra, and you get them all into the pit. Why did you like this piece of music, and why did you want to put it's colorful it's interesting for the orchestra it's challenging and it's full of good humor and high spirits and of wonderful lyrical third movement it's a terrific piece and we shouldn't be put off by that turn off of a title <laughs> so what are the good bits when we sit down to listen to this what are the bits that we well, really the will beginning enjoy? is energetic boisterous um, swashbuckling the second movement is the oriental one with a bell chiming, a little flute solo, and then a continual repetition of This is my debut as a singer, by the way. Um, We're so proud, too. <laughs> I wouldn't be. But that goes, that comes over and over again, like a dance that's building up momentum. Well, not, well, excitement, building up excitement, yeah. And then comes to a great big boom of a last 
finale. Yes, the finale started off as a funeral march and he speeded it up enormously and it becomes a really cheerful tune. See, since uh, apparently somebody was happy about death. Well, it doesn't. I mean, it wasn't a funeral march anymore. No, no. I, I, when years ago, I had to play the organ at a wedding. The bride was so late. I played all the pieces I knew. I ended up playing the funeral pieces faster. <laughs> so I've had experience of this. It was a long time ago. I assume that worked. Well, no one threw me out. Well, there you go. Yet. Yet. Uh, now, the next piece on the program is A Violinist's Paradise. It's been about four years since Simone has been here, and this time around you're bringing in what you said is a real favorite, the Bruch Violin Concerto Number 1. So why is it a favorite for you? Why do violinists in general all play this piece and all love this piece? I think... Uh Brooke offers uh, violin solace all the uh, indulgence that uh, we crave. There are these long singing lines above with the orchestra. There's really wonderful communication and conversation between the different parts of the orchestra. There is a finale which is so wonderfully joyous and celebratory. Uh, the structure of Brooke is I guess non-traditional in just the way that instead the meatiest movement uh, is really the second movement rather than having sort of this grand first movement and then a slower, more pensive second. I think the second is really when all the contemplation and real spiritual growth happens. I've always thought of it as like a uniquely ambrosial piece of music. Um, it starts with this incredible stillness that feels like a prayer and uh, builds into just like contemplative bliss and then eventually explodes into a finale, which is just so much fun. Yeah, the finale really um, kicks it out again. This is It's, it's uh, so much joy in the finale of this. And it has this beautiful, gentle start as well, which is always kind of a bit of a surprise to me. Absolutely, yeah. The the entire concerto starts um, pretty hushed. Um, it definitely sets the tone as, uh, I think on the whole, other than the last movement, it's a very introspective concerto. Um, it has really wonderful moments of um, profound intimacy that sort of balance out the, uh, I guess, posturing of the last movement. Um, so I love that it sort of you know, runs the entire gamut. The orchestral part on this is lovely as well, Christopher. Oh, a beautiful orchestration, yes, and uh, very well balanced. A lot of concertos, mm -hmm. the orchestra's too heavy, and Brooke knew how to shut the orchestra up so you could hear the violin properly. Yes, it is beautifully written. You know, it's interesting because for um, a concerto that sounds as fluid and organic as it does, this caused him a great deal of trouble. It took him... Uh, almost four years yeah. to, to write this. He struggled mightily, and you just you can't even hear that in this. Yeah, I mean, just making you know making things organic and simple is often the thing that you have to go through the yep. most. It's the art that conceals the art. Isn't yeah. It? Yes. So um, this is a piece of music too that Bruch himself grew to hate. He was very resentful of it. Um, he it took over his entire name. He wanted mm -hmm. them to play that Scottish thing or that second yeah. one, but but. Those never caught on. So you're the violinist, you're the maestro. What is it about the Bruch Concerto Number no. 1 that so overshadowed everything else that he wrote? You know, I, I've, I've listened out of, you know, the, his violin pieces, the, the two concertos and the Scottish fantasy. I think that the other concerto is quite good, but it just, it, seem, it seems to me pretty similar to the first and just like a little less 
captivating. Um, and I've never really been able to articulate exactly what it is. I love the Scottish fantasy, I think equally, um, maybe sometimes even a little bit more. But um, I think just the expressive range, um, the sort of diversity of the palette that's offered in this concerto is different than the one that came later. You're nodding your head, Christopher. Yeah, the tunes are better. Yeah. Actually, uh, I've done the second. Uh, it's very good, as Simone says, but in the first, the tunes, the melodies, and the themes are, if I may use a word like better, they're better. <laughs> they're more appealing, they're more immediate, they go to the heart more effectively. But he wrote a lot of pieces that we don't know. I heard for the first time a string octet, same as the Mendelssohn, except that it's cello and bass instead of two cellos. It's absolutely magnificent piece. He never heard it, wrote at the end of his life. So he was quite something. But, you know, Strauss resented De Rosenkavalier because no one wanted anything else. And he thought his best opera was Frau und Schatten, actually, and which was almost never done in his lifetime. So he resented the fact that he was always connected with Rosenkavalier. Well, what about these other ones? And they liked Till Eulenspiegel. And, well, what about my other tone poems? I mean, I can understand that with a composer. You work so hard for something, I know, that, that Leonard Bernstein always wanted to have the Great American Symphony and was, I think, a little annoyed that people kept paying attention to that Broadway musical of his. Yes, that's right. So, um, Simone, you were here four years ago, um, and you had a beautiful violin then. Is it the same violin now? No, actually. Um, just uh, this past June, um, I have a new partner. <laughs> um, my uh, The violin I'm playing right on right now is um, by Carlo Bergonzi. Oh. And... Uh, it has a really fascinating history because uh, it was a violin, one of those rare cases where it was sort of discovered very recently. Um, it was living under another name and no one knew what it was. It was uh, classified as a Galliano, which is again, a really fine violin, but definitely in a lower tier than a Bergonzi. And it was one that sort of mystified its owner. Uh, whenever they listened to it, they thought that it possessed a quality, a sound that was Cremonese, that was belonged to you know this golden era, um, that specialized uh, sound of like the Strads and the Guarneries and the Bergonzis. Um, but it had papers on it, it had everything confirming it was a Galliano. So eventually they were fed up. So they took it to London to a man who uh, is sort of the go-to for violin classification. And their suspicions were confirmed. Um, it was, it's a Bergonzi. And the reason it confused everyone is because it has a scroll made by Galliano. And the wood is actually from Stradivari's shop. So um, Bergonzi moved into Strad's shop when Strad died and used all of his old materials and used his Strad's leftover wood to make this violin. So I love that it's sort of, you know, this Frankenstein of an instrument that's come together into something beautiful. I love it. It's still relatively new to me, you know, less than six months. I still feel like I'm discovering new things about it really every day. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because violins are sentient beings. They're very different. So when you get a new partner, mm -hmm. as you did, uh, how long does it take uh, before you really feel like I can take this one out on the road now? We're we're singing in the same key. Mm -hmm. This one, I actually moved very quickly with just because the timing of a switch, I, I sort of needed to. So I performed on this actually a week after I got it, which is rare and kind of nuts. But um, it felt right. It was sort of, you know, like a Harry Potter wand movement where it's like, <laughs> you know, it felt chosen or something. And... Uh, so I was able to do it then, but I think 
I th- I feel like I know it much better now. I feel like the violin opened up more. It hadn't been played really for years. Everything changed, and um, every new piece that I play on it, you know, is when it when whatever discover uh, whatever requires a new tonal sound uh, color world whatever. Uh, you know, vistas open up that I hadn't imagined previously. Yeah, Lila Josephowitz had this violin that was in a closet for, you know, decades or something, and she said the, the, the process of opening it up mm-hmm. takes quite some time. Yes. So you you may not even know what this thing sounds like until two years from now. Yeah, well, I am excited. I it, Honestly, it keeps getting better, so I hope the trend continues. How did you find it? How did this happen? Uh, honestly, through the generosity of individuals, individuals around me. You know, a violin like this is obviously financially completely out of my reach, um, but it was through uh, a man, Michael Farrell, and a, a university that he's connected to, Masters University, who um, not only brought it to me, but restored the violin, uh, got it authenticated in the first place. It was people I had known for a while who are just tremendous, tremendously supportive and munificent. Yeah, how do you find, I mean, you need a new violin. You don't You don't go on Facebook and say, yeah. you know, hive mind, mm-hmm. I need a violin. Anybody have an idea? So where does that connection come from where you, you need a violin and somebody brings you a Burgundy? This connection, I had known the man who owned it for years. Uh, my uh, pre- my teacher during college was his teacher years ago, and uh, he still lived in the L.A. area where I live. Um, I had sort of played for him, and he's a violin collector, so I had, so I had been sort of his guinea pig when he wanted to buy something new. I would try it out for him, play it in a hall, um, let him know what I thought. We had been connected and friendly for years, and he had always been remarkably kind. And when uh, I found out that uh, the violin I used to play on the Guadagni wasn't going to be, uh, I wasn't going to be able to play that much longer, I sort of sent tendrils and messages out, and uh, he came through more than I ever could have imagined. It was a true blessing. So when when you discuss this, and, and Christopher, I'd like you to join join this discussion as well. When you talk about performing, uh, Simone, you say that playing is like a conversation. So I would like to talk to you uh, about, both of you, about the conversation that happens with you and the orchestra and you and the audience and you and Christopher with each other when you're performing where does that, Christopher, where does that conversation begin? Well, with someone like Simone, there's very little to talk about. We instinctively, when we did the Sibelius, mm-hmm. there was hardly, we hardly talked about it because we instinctively knew what each other were going to do. And that is a wonderful thing in music. It, it begins where words end, as Mendelssohn said. Music begins where words end. And um, very often with a soloist like Simone, uh, as soon as we start playing, it happens, and none of us know why. We're kind of in tune. Um, I'm very used to accompanying soloists of various degrees of difficulty of following and ease of following, and I can very often smell in advance, if I put it that way, mm-hmm. what they're going to do. And I've done this uh, concerto many, many times, and I'm delighted to do it. It's one of my favorites. I think it's absolutely gorgeous, actually, and very touching. So um, the conversation between us is a musical one, not a verbal one, based on a kind of unspoken, agreed understanding 
of the music. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. Now, the conversation between the soloist and the orchestra is a different one because the soloist, uh, typically the soloist would play a tune, then the orchestra would crash in and play the same tune much louder. I mean, that's the <laughs> standard thing in most concertos. So there is a certain dialogue in that sense, and there's another dialogue in the sense that the orchestra accompanies the soloist, and so is a, a, a something underneath what the soloist is saying, an understanding and a support of what the soloist is saying. And we hope, both of us and the orchestra, hope that this mixture of conversations will project and get across to our audience. How do you set up your conversation? How do you begin your conversation, Simone? I think... Oh, yeah, it's absolutely um, nonverbal, but I think going on stage, the intention is to develop a sort of inner sympathy um, with everybody. And that, uh, I always like to think when I'm on stage, I always like to feel like I am listening um, with the audience and with everybody else. Um, and I think being on stage, the conversation that... Uh, can happen it should be like you know the uh, the boundaries that what makes it good is what makes like any conversation good it's a lot of listening a lot of compassion um empathy flexibility uh you know humility and pliability i think are sort of requisites for any type of collaborative music making and um, when everybody is able to go into it with um that openness uh with that willingness that's when the magic can happen that like that's when you can feel really like you're part of something bigger that's you know more than the sum of your parts so that's sort of always the on-stage nirvana goal. <laughs> so the last part of our puzzle for this week is Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. 4. Christopher, I happen to know you love this piece. Oh, I love all the Tchaikovsky symphonies that I do. Yeah, this was actually Tchaikovsky's favorite. He said that to various people. He may have said other things at other times, but he is on record as having said number four was his favorite. Oh, of course, it's got that wonderful opening, the fate knocking at the door fanfare and the horns and then the brass come in. And um, the most, the first movement, it says in the tempo of a waltz, it has the, you know, with Tchaikovsky, the ballet is never far away. And, and bless him for that, because it gives his music a wonderful uh, color and feel to it. And it says in the, in, the, in the style of a waltz, but it's a sad waltz. It's not a happy waltz. It's a wistful waltz. It's a poignant waltz. And it becomes very passionate indeed and very strong. And at dramatic moments, that bum, 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 that fanfare bursts through the orchestra, which he thought was fate. He talked about this symphony more than he talked about most of his pieces. He described in letters to his patron or one of his patrons uh, what he had in mind. So that, that was uh, his feeling. Second movement, well, that's a simple folk song. Starts with the oboe and the orchestra take it up. Very simple Russian kind of folk song. Sad in the minor key. Third movement is he goes into a sort of dreamland. The strings put their bows down and it's all plucked pizzicato. Playful, dreamy, um, fantastical, fantastical. And then various other things appear. An army marches through in the distance, that little march theme in the brass. And then someone very drunk comes out of a pub, that's a bit on the clarinet, and then whistles, there's a bit on the piccolo. So that is the third movement. The last movement, he decides that despite 
as he thought, Tchaikovsky thought, fate was against him. The way to be happy is to enter into the happiness of other people, and ain't that the truth? And uh, in the last movement, uh, he is very joyous. It does get back to the fate theme. As it's getting more and more cheerful, suddenly, oh, not again, fate at the door, help. But he does actually finally enter into the celebration and happiness that he observes around him, which he didn't always have himself. And it's a very brilliant, very exciting finish. Actually, and the, uh, the symphony itself ends... Uh, the program with Rejoice in the Happiness of Others, and You Can Still Live. That's right. And yet he committed suicide. Well, we don't know that. Perhaps. No, there are two theories. Um, the more likely theory we're saying now, that what they are now telling us, is that uh, he was very careless one day, and he drank. there was a cholera epidemic, and he drank a glass of water that had not been filtered and got cholera and died of it. When he went at the end of his life, he was very optimistic. He had plans. He was going to write an opera based on the George Eliot novel, Amos Barton. Uh, he was going to write several other things. He was going to travel. He'd just been given a doctorate at Cambridge. I handled the page he signed. I felt the bumps on the page when I was a student at King's Cambridge, made by Tchaikovsky's pen when he signed his name and wrote the theme from Francesca da Rimini. So th th that is not the only theory of Tchaikovsky's death by, uh, by any means. My big question about this that I, I've always found interesting is that of all of his symphonies, this one was not universally loved. It bombed at its its uh, premiere. It came to the States. It bombed here as well. This symphony just could not catch a break. And I've never been able to understand exactly what it was about this symphony that you love so much that made people not love it so much when it first came around. It's curious that. Um, I don't know whether he was conducting it himself. But he, I don't know whether his conducting was as good as his composing. That's one possibility. The Fifth Symphony certainly was a total failure, and uh, until the conductor, Arthur Nickish, the, the teacher of one of my mentors, Sir Adrian Bolt, put it on the map, and Nickish did it in a way that it got it across and everyone loved it forever. So the, uh, the, it is strange because it's, I would have thought it was quite difficult to do the fourth in a way that people didn't like, yeah. <laughs> but I think somebody managed, I don't know who. Well, we're, um, we're going to uh, wrap this up a little bit, but before we go um, and wrap this up, I did want to ask one last question of Simone because uh, you actually have a reading list. You had your favorite <laughs> books of 2018. So I thought that perhaps uh, Christopher and I could take a page, pun intended, from you and ask you, what are you reading these days? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just finished uh, on the plane here yesterday uh, this book uh, which... I think everyone has been telling me to read The Overstory by Richard Powers, um, which is this just incredibly polyphonic novel that's basically all about people who find themselves in, uh, in league with one another, um, basically trying to protect and understand trees. So uh, people who come from all sorts of backgrounds, it goes from like antebellum New York all the way to present day, people who are computer scientists, who are eco-terrorists, who are botanists. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've um, read this year. The whole sort of thesis is about how 
interconnected nature is, how, you know, there is no such thing as an individual tree. Uh, forest is a living, breathing organism that relies on itself. And he sort of, you know, shows that, uh, connects that to human lives, of course, and uh, shows how symbiotic human relationships and human nature relationships are. And it was just really, really gorgeous. Do you read fast or slow? I don't think I read that fast, but I read a lot, so I go through things yes. quickly. But I've, I've actually, tr- over the past years, I've tried to slow myself down because I used to be someone who read for plot, and now I want to smell the flowers. <laughs> well, if it's great literature, you want to savor it, don't exactly. you? Exactly, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. No, no, I really want to yeah. taste it, yeah. And what are you reading these days? Well, I'm trying to remember its title. This is a terrible thing to say. It's a book by an English farmer who decided they'd do more natural kind of farming instead of chemical kind of farming and gradually turned their farm around to a more natural product. Not unlike your topic, (laughs) funnily enough, but I'm I'm halfway through it and I've forgotten the title. Oh, well, you know, we could... But never mind. We could always Google, so how is it? Oh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm speed reading some of it because certain botanical details are a little bit uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> but uh, I, it's, 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 um, it's um, an important subject. You are also an author, so how is that? Well, I would, yes, that's... Oh, that's yeah, come on, that was a great, that's a terrific book. Well, people are reading it and conducting students are reading it, which is very nice, and occasionally I get a letter, thank you so much for the book. It's called Inside Conducting, as you know. And I wish, put it this way, Julia, there are many books on conducting, and it's one of them, but if I had read this book when I was 23, I would have found certain things would have been easier, quicker. I do have to say, you know, part of the book, one of the things that your tips in the book has become an obsession with me, and that's don't get a hotel room near the elevator oh. and the ice machine. <laughs> and, and, and now well, that was a very profound musical point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So now when we, when we book a hotel, first thing, I and don't want... And the ice machine. That's and the, an avalanche every 20 minutes. And the ice machine. No yes. ice machine, no, no elevator. So that's... I want to thank you for that. It was a it oh. was a brilliant uh, traveler's tip, and Simone, make note of that. Absolutely, yes. yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you all for uh, both of you for coming in today, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, Christopher Seaman and Simone Porter were my guests. If you'd like more information about the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.